This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Um, if you've made it this far into Wuthering Heights, I feel like you deserve an award or something. Um, this is our fifth episode analyzing this book. Taking five episodes on a single work is something that we've only done with uh, two other authors, and that would be Hawthorne with The Scarlet Letter, which was our first series, and then again with our um, Shakespeare plays. But, goodness, navigating through Wuthering Heights is nothing short of brutal. <laughs> I've gone back and looked at those um, initial harsh criticisms we read in episode one, and I have to admit, they weren't wrong in recognizing this. Oh, no, it is brutal. But honestly... How could a book about generational abuse be anything except brutal? Exposing the brutality of abuse is in many ways at the heart of this book. But honestly, an even more important purpose, and for me, the reason to suffer the experience <laughs> of reading this book is not to experience abuse, but because Emily offers hope. There is literally nothing anyone could ever do to undo any abuse anyone has suffered in the past. And Bronte highlights this very clearly. However, she suggests that even under terrible circumstances, there is a way to be free of the curse of abuse and move into a future of new beginnings. And yet she absolutely parallels with this idea that it's possible and maybe even easier to live and die in the victimhood of the past. This week we will end, mercifully, <laughs> this journey. We've weathered enough. We've weathered enough. 
And for me, this conclusion is almost fairy tale like in a way, which I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, my first question oh, about man. this book when I read it was this. Why does Bronte give the girls the exact same name? It's so confusing. I mean, even if one had been Catherine and the other Kathy, that would have helped. Uh, but she even mixes the nicknames up deliberately, uh, trying to get us to confuse the two women. Well, I know. And I've had that exact same question. And of course, it occurs to me now, because I really do believe that authors never do things accidentally or whimsically, that this confusion must be an undeniable attempt to get us to understand that the journey of the two Catherines, maybe it's the same journey. The experiences are the same. And yet she's going to juxtapose two opposite postures in life and two very different outcomes. The first was a tragedy, the second a comedy. One ends in death, the other a wedding. And this last episode absolutely leaves us with the feeling we have not felt after we finish the other parts of the book. This last episode leaves us with a feeling of hope and security and empowerment. It also clarifies Emily Bronte's very heterodox religious views, which I will say are very, let me put it this way, Christian in tradition, but not traditional in their Christianity. Hmm. That's a chiasmus. A chiasmus. <laughs> I'm proud of that sentence structure. Those are hard to make. <laughs> chiasmus. It is. I love chiasmuses. Me too. If you, if you make that plural. Uh, but let me say that hope and security and empowerment are great emotions to carry forward, um, especially this time of year and particularly this year. If you're listening to this episode in real time, this is the first weekend of December, which in a Western tradition uh, is the month where we do focus on hope and peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And it's also the year 2020. So happy December 2020 uh, as we round out the tumultuous, wuthering year of 2020. Um, Christian and I have thought about how we could use our small voice to give some hope and peace and goodwill to the different communities that we connect with through this podcast, and we came up with a small idea. Um, 2020 has been so brutal to everyone, we thought if we could do nothing else, we could at least give some recognition and a shout out to small entrepreneurs out there who are braving our uh, 2020 storm and opening their businesses and serving their communities and and connecting with people. So this is what we want to propose. If you are a small business or if you have one you love and want to support, send us a picture or shout out at Gary at howtolovelitpodcast.com. And that is Gary with two R's, not one R, two R's, G-A-R-R-Y at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Well, if the Gary throws you off, you can always just go to the website and go to our contact page. And we would like to promote and give your business and community a shout out on any of our social media accounts, recognizing and giving the respect to the many people who have pulled together this year in a unique way. Okay, well, back to the story. Um, Let's give a little recap as uh, how we've tried to organize this book. In episode one, we covered chapters one through three um, as we were introduced to the estate and the residents of Wuthering Heights. Episode two, we made it into chapter 10, uh, discussing the childhood years of Catherine Heathcliff and reading about that most famous 
I am Heathcliff speech. I am speech Heathcliff. That, that Catherine <laughs> gives as she decides to marry Edgar. And uh, this is the speech that Heathcliff doesn't hear because after hearing th- that she thinks it would degrade her to marry him, he runs away and doesn't hear the rest of it. True. And then in episode three, we've jumped three years. Edgar and Catherine are married. Six months later, Heathcliff is back. A changed man. Very good looking. Very rich. But a man on a mission. And it seems he has developed a mission of revenge. In episode three, Heathcliff moves back to Withering Heights. Henley degrades himself through alcoholism and gambling. Heathcliff begins the process of buying Wuthering Heights from Henley while at the same time seeking to destroy Henley's son, Harriton, by treating the child the exact same way Henley treated Heathcliff as a child. An obvious and, you know, understandable revenge sequence. Well, speaking of authors doing things on purpose, we have Harrington, Henley, Heathcliff. <laughs> We have just this proliferation of H's. Indeed. And in the they story. and they kind of run around, too. Mm. Well, so while all that is going on in the background, uh, the focus of this section of the book is not on Heathcliff's revenge towards Henley. Uh, episode 3 really centers on the deterioration uh, of Catherine and the love triangle between her and Heathcliff and Edgar. She wants to have both Edgar and Heathcliff in her life. And uh, when it becomes evident this absolutely will not happen, she dies in a a bizarre way, you know, perhaps suicide, perhaps insanity, perhaps both. But uh, right before dying, however, Catherine gives birth to a child also named Catherine. But uh, Heathcliff also gets married and has a child with his wife, Edgar's sister, Isabella, uh, a young woman who he also deliberately and viciously abuses. And eventually, after throwing a knife at her head, she leaves him and she moves to London and raises a child uh, six months younger than little baby Kathy. And her son's name is Linton Heathcliff. And Linton being her maiden name and obviously Heathcliff being her married name. And, of course, the young and the restless have nothing on Emily Bronte (laughs) with all these twists and turns. There's so many of them. But the main thing to notice are the parallels and the doubles in the story. And that's kind of what makes your head spin. It makes you have to go back and reread who's who. And that's by design. Everything, everything is happening twice. Everything has a double. Everything has an opposite, too. From the weather, the storm of Wuthering Heights, to the calm in the valley, to the houses, Wuthering Heights is chaotic, and the house of Thrushcrash Grange is peaceful. But the characters, generation one to generation two, they parallel, but they're not the same. And of course, today we're going to juxtapose outcome number one to outcome number two. And let's not forget last week's episode, uh, before we jump into today, uh, in that one, we leave Generation 1, for the most part, and focus on the second generation. Uh, this is the generation of Little Kathy and Little Linton and Harrington, and who are all three victims of abuse. And arguably, Harrington, the most abused of them all, I mean, no one in his life has loved him unlike the other two. I know. And we have one child of Edgar, Catherine, one child of Henley, Harrington, one child of Heathcliff, Linton. Is that confusing enough for you? <laughs> yeah, we need a chart. 
I mean, it, it really does require me to slow down in my thinking and draw the family tree in my head, uh, or I'll get lost. I know. Uh, last episode focuses on the most difficult chapters, for me anyway, to read, even though there's nothing that's not difficult from the beginning until now. We see so much abuse and evil and all at the hand of Heathcliff. Yeah, we could do the whole separate episode on the the illnesses going on there, the mental illnesses. But uh, there's no doubt that Heathcliff and even Catherine suffered a lot of abuse and neglect and trauma in their childhood. And Heathcliff takes his childhood pain and he, he just seeks to inflict it in a grotesquely manifested way on helpless, innocent children. And in this section, Heathcliff is all-powerful, and he manipulates his son, Linton. He physically hurts all three children. He dominates Edgar, uh, Catherine, number one's husband, uh, Catherine, number two's father, and by stealing his property through the manipulation of uh, property law in Victorian England, but also by seeking to deny him his daughter's presence, even at Edgar's moment of death. And the revenge of Heathcliff, birthed out of childhood abuse, just drives the action and it destroys everything in its wake and uh, progresses to the third generation in the person of his own son, Linton, who is also abusive to his wife, Catherine, number two. Yes, that is all true. Yet, I want to point out a subtlety of technique that I think is important to see. If we want to get to where Emily Bronte is taking us in the conclusion of her novel, we also must be aware the entire time that Heathcliff's cruelty rises from his personal misery. His hatred is destructive to everyone, and that includes himself. It's not that he hates everyone else. He hates himself, and that's what's driving his indiscriminate hatred outward. The self-hatred is there for the readers to see. It's also there for us to feel. And so because we can see it and we can feel it, we never stop entirely sympathizing with Heathcliff, even at his cruelest moments. (laughs) Of which there are many. I mean, the cruelest, uh, perhaps, is where we start this episode with the death of his son, Linton, here in chapter 29. Edgar Linton is dead He's buried with his wife, Catherine, although Heathcliff does try to block that. Nellie interjects herself. Of course. (laughs) She's supposed to. She's the narrator, right? And makes sure that that his will is legally followed. But but little Hinton Heathcliff has done something at the end of Chapter 8. Pretty much the only kind thing he ever does in his entire miserable life. Uh, but this one act of kindness and bravery will turn the rest of his life into an even uh, greater living hell than he's already experiencing, as if it weren't bad enough. What does he do? He gives Catherine number two the key and lets her escape from the house to be with her father on his deathbed. And that uh, is foiling Heathcliff attempt to keep Catherine from Edgar uh, at his moment of death. And this will not go unpunished by his father. Nothing ever does. <laughs> no. But speaking of revenge, Heathcliff is not done revenging himself on Edgar, even though Edgar is in the grave. It's time to stop beating a dead horse. And you can't. The evening after the funeral, he marches over to Thrushcrush Grange and demands that Catherine come to live with him, not because he wants her there for any reason except to make her miserable. 
And it is this exchange between Catherine II and Heathcliff that we see the starkest contrast Bronte has yet made between Catherine the mother and Catherine the daughter. Heathcliff announces that she has to return with him and stay with Linton, who everyone knows is a horrible person. And Catherine says this, I shall. Linton is all I have to love in this world. And though you have done what you could to make him hateful to me and me to him, you cannot make us hate each other. And I defy you to hurt him when I am by. And I defy you to frighten me. Well, you know, Heathcliff doesn't take her threat of defiance seriously. He answers her by saying, you are a boastful champion, but... I don't like you well enough to hurt him. (laughs) You shall get the full benefit of the torment as long as it lasts. Is it not I who will make him hateful to you? It is his own sweet spirit. He's as bitter as gall at your desertion and its consequences. Don't expect thanks for this noble devotion. Um, You know, it seems Heathcliff has been abusing Linton for letting Kathy out. And Linton's blamed Kathy for the abuse and even has been telling Zilla everything he'd like to do to Kathy if he were strong enough to do it. And apparently it's horrible stuff. Yes, but Kathy makes the point defiantly and bravely to Heathcliff that he has no control over her spirit, no matter what he can do to her body. And she calls him out again. And here we're going to see Bronte begin to use some language we've only seen a couple times. First in Lockwood's first dream in chapter one on the night he shows up at Withering Heights, but then again in episode two in a conversation we read between Nella and Heathcliff, we see the language of forgiveness. Here towards the end of the book, Catherine responds to Heathcliff's assessment of Linton by saying this, I know he has a bad nature, he's your son, but I'm glad I have a better to forgive it. And I know he loves me, and for that reason, I love him. Mr. Heathcliff, you have nobody to love you, and however miserable you make us, we shall still have the revenge of thinking that your cruelty arises from your greater misery. You are miserable, are you not? Lonely like the devil and envious like him. Nobody loves you. Nobody will cry for you when you die. I wouldn't be you. She's a little wrong because <laughs> Harrison does cry for Heathcliff when he dies, but this language is remarkable. It absolutely parallels and contrasts sharply with Heathcliff's own experience as a little boy. If you recall, Henley had been so abusive to Heathcliff, he degraded him, embarrassed him in front of Edgar and Isabella. Heathcliff goes downstairs to Nellie and he says this, I'm trying to settle how I shall pay Henley back. I don't care how long I wait. If I can only do it at last, I hope he will not die before I do it. To which Nellie says, For shame, Heathcliff. It is for God to punish wicked people. We should learn to forgive. Do you know what Heathcliff says to that, Gary? <laughs> I absolutely remember. <laughs> he says He says this, God won't have the satisfaction that I shall. I only wish I knew the best way. Let me alone and I'll plan it out. While I'm thinking of that, I don't feel pain. Uh, and we understand it's truth that there that there's a numbness uh, to the revenge. And numbness is better than pain in his world. True. And, you know, there's solace in that. But watching the experience of Heathcliff through the years 
makes it quite clear that it's Bronte's contention that over time, this solace or numbness from revenge is empty, even if you get it. We ended last week with this idea that Catherine, too, has an ability to empathize with others, to have love, a passion, if you want it to compare to her mother, who also had passion, but her passion is others regarding, as opposed to her mother's love, which was absolutely self-regarding. And that's a great observation, and I think we call that compassion. Well, it is. And Wuthering Heights, the relationship between passion and compassion is demonstrated by the parallels of the Cathy's. And compassion gives Catherine, too, a power her mother just never had. Even though there's no doubt Catherine, one, is very powerful in her passion, Catherine, too, has the same fight in her mom. She has the strength of will and the depth of emotion, but we're adding this component, this ability to see other people, and that links to forgiveness. Bronte is going to flesh out this difference between passion alone and compassion and what it does for each person. And really, to me, it feels counterintuitive, almost counter-evolutionary to think that others-centered would be better than self-centered. It doesn't seem like it would work. Well, Catherine, number two, is no saint. We can say that for sure. And, and this struggle with Linton takes a toll, and she does turn into a kind of a mean person after Linton's death, and especially mean to Harriton. Uh, but to her credit, um, this willingness to sacrifice herself, even for worthless Linton, it prepares the readers uh, for her even greater moral confrontations that she's going to have with Heathcliff. She's stronger than him. Uh, she's made different choices with her abuse than, uh, than he made under very similar circumstances. She's been abused by two Heathcliffs, the father and the son, double the abuse he received at the hand of Henley. Yet where Heathcliff takes his abuse and passes this abuse forward, um, seeking revenge on the next generation, Catherine number two reverses the sequence. She gets her revenge back on Heathcliff by refusing to allow him to make her hate. And her revenge rests on the power uh, in her recognition, really, of the causes behind Heathcliff's behavior. And she refuses to hate him uh, like Isabel and Henley both did. And really, what this actually does for her is completely rob him of any domination over her. And I want to point out, uh, because it's important really to make this distinction, she never likes him. She never has any respect for him. She never feels obligated to extend any kindness or mercy on him at all. She doesn't have to. Uh, He doesn't deserve that. But she accepts his evil as being on him and about him and not on her. And it does give her a victory of mind for herself. Yeah, and she stays with Linton until his death. She takes care of him in spite of Linton's horrible cruelty to her the whole time. And when Linton finally dies, Heathcliff actually asks Kathy how she feels. I'm not sure I remember him doing that ever before in the book. But she says this, He's safe and I'm free. I should feel well, but you have left me so long to struggle with death alone that I feel and see only death. I feel like death. Wow. Well, according to Zilla, who is telling all this to Nellie, she looks like death, too. 
Yes, which I do need to point out because it's so confusing. Zilla, like <laughs> do we have she shows. Narrator? <laughs> I know. How many is this? I know. It's the fourth one. Zilla is the fourth narrator, and she's sort of a narrator. Nellie is really still telling the story to Lockwood after his excursion in Chapter 1 to Wuthering Heights. But since she's been exiled away from Wuthering Heights back to the Grange, she has to get her information from Zilla, who's over there snooping around and, you know, keeping up with things. She's the nurse, or the not the nurse, but the maid at Wuthering Heights. Right, and the, the maids pass the gospel. Oh, room. yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it seems we finally made it to the present tense. Yay! The long story from birth until Lockwood's advent is finished. Yes, and now you can see all the players are in the proper location where they were when Lockwood blunders in on the scene. And if you go back and reread Chapter 1, which you likely don't have energy for at this point, (laughs) the story would make more sense now. Uh, We can see Catherine. She's being rude to Lockwood, even though he's mesmerized. She finds her so gorgeous, which is something I haven't taken the time to develop. But it's kind of this weird thing. Lockwood has this crush on her the whole way through. But anyway, uh, back to this idea that Kathy has faced abuse She's chosen to forgive Heathcliff by understanding his hatred is about hating him and not really about hating her. Now she's faced death, not once but twice, the death of her father, the death of her husband. And she stared at both down when he, by the time, all of this, by the time Lockwood kind of stumbles in. Oh, wow. What a great idea to go back and read chapter one now, because that would make (laughs) sense. Yeah. So, but let's not forget she's been robbed of her finances um, it's reasonable to understand while she's not very pleasant pretty much from here until almost the end of the book. And after Linton dies, she goes up to her room for two weeks. And the only interaction really is with Zilla, who brings her uh, food. And then Heathcliff to show her the will to tell her that all of Linton's property went to him and not her. And he wanted her to know that. And uh, we'll use Zilla, who is Heathcliff's servant's own words. Here, as she describes the situation to Nellie, she's as poor as you or I. Poor. I'll be bound. You're saving, and I'm doing my little all that road. Kathy has nothing. Heathcliff has taken everything. His revenge is thorough. And yet, not even this is his entire plan. <laughs> oh, there's no depth. No oh end my to gosh. It. We skipped this part in chapter 29, uh, but it's freaky and very gothic when Heathcliff goes to take Catherine to Withering Heights you know right after the the death of her father the day after Edgar's funeral he tells Nellie this plan (laughs) let's read this piece of work I got the sexton who was digging Linton's grave to remove the earth off her coffin lid and I opened it I thought once I would have stayed there when I saw her face again It is hers yet. He had hard work to stir me, but he said it would change if the air blew on it. And so I stuck one side of the coffin loose and covered it up. Not Linton's side, damn him. I wish he'd been soldered in lead. And I bribed the sexton to pull it away when I'm laid there and slide mine out too. I'll have it made so. And then by the time Linton gets to us, he'll not know which is which. So this is his plan. (laughs) He's going to open Catherine's coffin. He looks at her corpse. 
Then he loosens the sideboards on one side of Catherine's coffin, not the side next to Edgar, but the other mm-hmm. side. Then he pays the sexton to take it off after he dies and not to put the wood on that would separate his coffin from Catherine's coffin so that their ashes can blend together and he can keep Catherine's ashes away from Edgar's Oh, my gosh. This is going to go on into eternity? (laughs) Yep. Well, he also thinks he uh, sees Catherine's face totally as it was the day she died. And remember, this is 17 (laughs) years later. That's not possible. Uh, I think we can say Heathcliff's stuck 17 years at least in the past. And obviously, Catherine's face is not there. And psychologically, what's happening uh, as the revenge becomes complete, Heathcliff begins to cease to exist. Uh, if you want to see a parallel, it's kind of the way Catherine did as she stood in her window uh, on the night of her death, looking back into her past and not moving forward. Heathcliff eventually confesses to Nellie, I have to remind myself to breathe, almost to remind my heart to beat. And it is like bending back a stiff spring. It is by compulsion that I do the slightest act, not prompted by by one thought and by compulsion that I notice anything alive or dead, which is not associated with one universal idea. And, and of course, the idea is this twisted entanglement with Catherine and, and his revenge. What we see is that Heathcliff is just as unwilling as Catherine to compromise in life. And now his identity is going away kind of like hers did. And even with this total revenge, he could not go back and recapture um, a pure past. It was it was never going to exist. It's just physically and cosmically impossible, and he can't accept that. And so we are left with this decomposing image of Heathcliff, and we're going to see at the same time rising out of the ashes, if you want to use that oh metaphorical my. term, another and better emerging story, which is the fairy tale ending. I keep promising we're going to finally get Are we to. getting there? Yes, Gary. There's a little Harlequin romance here. Harlan Harrington's love is going to rescue Catherine, but reciprocally... Catherine's love is going to raise Harriton from what the book calls idiocy to sophistication. And I think we call that reciprocation, which has been lacking in all these other relationships. And uh, at the end of chapter 30, Lockwood is speaking now with his own voice, uh, no more Nellie narrative. So he decides to leave Thrushcross Grange for six months. But before heading out, he goes one more time to Wuthering Heights to say goodbye and Remember, his other two experiences were not hospitable. <laughs> no, he chased out by dogs. <laughs> right. What, what he sees is what he saw in Chapter 1. Catherine is mean to Harriton. Harriton is ignorant uh, and is frustrated with Catherine that he throws books in the fire after Catherine and shamed him one more time. Harriton and Catherine literally argue back and forth, but now Lockwood understands the context, and so do we, so the readers. So another thing that happens is that Heathcliff happens to mention Lockwood that when he looks into Harrington's face, he can never see Hindley. He can only see Catherine. True. And then... He's got a thing for Catherine's face. (laughs) He does. When Lockwood comes back six months later, and here Bronte stops to give us a year. It's 1802. Notice that the very first word or the first images on the first page is 1801. 
But here, 1802, we're going to have our closure. Lockwood goes back to Withering Heights to announce that he's back, and lo and behold, it's different. First, the door to the estate is unlocked, and then he sees Catherine and Harriton talking about kissing each other. Nellie is singing a song. (laughs) But more importantly, he finds out that Heathcliff is dead, and poor penniless Kathy is now the owner of both estates. Thrush, crush, grange, the mouthful, and withering heights. That's a nice turn of events. All right, and who saw that coming? (laughs) Not Lockwood. I mean, I think the word Bronte uses um, for how Lockwood reacts is astonished and who wouldn't be? I, I noticed one more, one more parallel. While uh, Nellie and Lockwood sit down to tell the story, Catherine and Heathcliff are out. I presume maybe on the moors, uh, like those who came before them. Yes, and the story is sweet, although it starts with Catherine first comparing Harriton to a dog, because that's really what she thinks he is at the beginning. She sees Harriton as the feral child of Heathcliff, which in part he is, but... Harriton not only stands up to her for being rude to him, he confronts her on her mischaracterization of his behavior. She says, You hate me as much as Mr. Heathcliff does and more. To which he responds, let's kind of read that little section. It is not I who hate you. It is you who hate me, wept Kathy, no longer disguising her trouble. You hate me as much as Mr. Heathcliff does and more. You're a damned liar, began Earnshaw. Why have I made him angry by taking your part then a hundred times and that when you sneered at and despised me and go on plaguing me and I'll step in yonder and say you worried me out of the kitchen? I didn't know you took my part, she answered, drying her eyes. And I was miserable and bitter at everybody. But now I thank you and I beg you to forgive me. What can I do besides... It's notable because here we see the word forgive again. Forgiveness is going to be referenced multiple times for the next couple of pages, and it becomes evident to both Catherine and Harriton that they have to forgive each other. And although I have to admit, this is really hard for Harriton to do because Kathy has just been so bad to him. The text says that he, quote, trembled and his face glowed. All his rudeness and all his surly harshness had deserted him. He could not summon courage at first to utter a syllable in reply. She'd asked him to forgive her, to which she says again, Say you forgive me, Harriton, do. And after a little more trust building, because he doesn't give Mm -hmm. in easily, he does. And as soon as he does, Nellie observes this. The intimacy thus commenced and grew rapidly, though it encountered temporary interruptions. Harriton was not civilized with the wish, and my young lady was no philosopher and no paragon of patience. (laughs) One loving and desiring to esteem, the other loving and desiring to be esteemed. Sweet. Well, you know what is noticeable here, uh, and we have to compare this to Catherine number one, As you recall, her marriage to Edgar was described as not the thorn bending to the honeysuckles, but the honeysuckles embracing the thorn. There was no mutual concessions. This relationship is a total contrast. Um, One relationship that is reciprocal compared to another that is about submission of one party to the other. Very different. 
And this leads us to the final moral confrontation we've been working up to. The ultimate defeat over generational abuse, which is expressed in all sorts of symbolic ways in chapter 33. But here it kind of shows out with this ridiculous incident over Joseph's current trees. So what's happened is that Harriton has pulled up Joseph's current trees because Kathy wants to bring some flowers from the Grange to Withering Heights. Notice she's bringing the calm of Thrushcrash mm-hmm. Grange to the chaos of Withering Heights. But here we have a confrontation between Kathy and Heathcliff that is quite notable. Let's read that. You shouldn't grudge a few yards of earth for me to ornament when you have taken all my land. Your land, insolent slut, you never had any. And my money, she continued, returning her angry glare and meantime biting a piece of crust, the remnant of her breakfast. Silence. Get done and be gone. And Harriton's land and his money. Harriton and I are friends now, and I shall tell him all about you. The master seemed confounded a moment. He grew pale and rose up, eyeing her all the while with an expression of mortal hate. If you strike me, Harriton will strike you, she said, so you may as well sit down. If Harrington does not turn you out of the room, I'll strike him to hell. Damnable witch, dare you pretend to rouse him against me? Off with her, do you hear? Fling her into the kitchen. I'll kill her, Ellen Dean, if you let her come into my sight again. Harrington tried under his breath to persuade her to go. Drag her away. Are you staying to talk? And he approached to execute his own command. He'll not obey you, wicked man, anymore, and he'll soon detest you as much as I do. Wished? Wished? I will not hear you speak so to him. Have done. Well, you won't let him strike me. Come then, he whispered earnestly. It was too late. Heathcliff had caught hold of her. Now you go, he said to Earnshaw, a cursed witch. This time she has provoked me when I could not bear it, and I'll make her repent it forever. He had his hand in her hair. Harrington attempted to release the locks and treated him not to hurt her that once. His black eyes flashed. He seemed ready to tear Catherine in pieces, and I was just worked up to risk coming to the rescue when, of a sudden, his fingers relaxed. He shifted his grasp from her head to her arm and gazed intently in her face. Then he drew his hand over his eyes, stood a moment to collect himself apparently, and turning anew to Catherine, said with assumed calmness, you must learn to avoid putting me in a passion or I shall really murder you sometime. Heathcliff has surrendered to Catherine. For the first time, it says this, he was confounded. Catherine tries for a moment to turn Harriton against Heathcliff, kind of like her mother would use Heathcliff against her dad, but Harriton did not turn against Heathcliff. After we just this part that we just read, we're going to see that he does stand up for Heathcliff, although every reader knows Heathcliff deserves nothing from Harriton. But Harriton does not hate him. And when Harriton tells Kathy he loves Heathcliff, Catherine lets it go. Nellie says this, She showed a good heart thenceforth in avoiding complaints and expressions of antipathy concerning Heathcliff, and confessed to me her sorrow that she had endeavored to raise a bad spirit between him and Harriton. Indeed, I don't believe she ever breathed a syllable in the latter's hearing against her oppressor since. And now, <laughs> Catherine's revenge. 
on Heathcliff is complete uh, because for the first time when he sees Catherine and Harrington together, uh, their eyes, those of Catherine Earnshaw, disarm him. Uh, he understands maybe for the first time his own responsibility for his own unhappiness. And he says he lost the faculty of enjoying their destruction, <laughs> which is great. Great thing to lose. Well, Catherine has proven she's not afraid of him, and there's nothing he can do to make her afraid. And Harrington has proved he loves him, and that's in spite of all of his evil. There's no victory in destroying either one of them. He doesn't have the power to do it. He says this, I find the will to lift a slate off either roof has vanished. My old enemies have not beaten me. Now would be the precise time to revenge myself on their representatives. I could do it, and none could hinder me. But what's the use? I don't care for striking. I can't take the trouble to raise my hand. That sounds as if I'm being laboring the whole time, only to exhibit a fine trace of magnanimity. It is far from being the case. I have lost the faculty of enjoying their destruction, and I too idle to destroy for nothing. Well, here's the final parallel of the story, and the pretty one. (laughs) If we see both the parents and the children of having suffered from neurotic derangement of the worst kinds, which I do, and I think it's obvious, there are two responses. The first is to try to go back to the past to recreate the happy state before the abuse. The other, which is obviously a much more difficult response, is to be able to integrate the res- the abuse into your existence, but move toward the future. Well, you know, I'm going to find this very forwarding out here. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, Heathcliff is connected to Catherine One somewhere in the past, and he's going to find her out there, as he says, uh, that really is the only way to make sense of this final death sequence, and, or really even Catherine Number One's death at all. They, they want their heaven in the grave. Heathcliff says this to Nellie, I dreamt I was sleeping the last sleep by that sleeper, he means Catherine, with my heart stopped and my cheek frozen against hers. <laughs> I mean, he he literally sees Catherine everywhere he looks. Well, he, he does. He sees her in the kids, but then he sees her everywhere, and he literally says, "I cannot look down to this floor." But her features are shaped in the flags. So, do you think he's going crazy? Going? <laughs> he's been there the whole time. Well, he's just his, his cheese has finally slipped all the way <laughs> off the cracker. But well, maybe we don't want to judge. Of course we do. But it's a gothic novel, so everything's possible. But it, but it seems he has seen Catherine. And now the way I see it, and of course the way it's written is very ambiguous, as I'm sure Bronte intended. But remember that first night that Lockwood came into the house and had that nightmare? Uh, Lockwood is the guy that introduced the idea of the ghost at Wuthering Heights. And maybe that's the power of suggestion, because Heathcliff wants Catherine to be a ghost. And Maybe Bronte has made her a ghost for real. I'm not sure it really matters. But Heathcliff, like Catherine number one before him, will starve himself to death. Yes, and then he strangely proclaims also, like Catherine, that he's done nothing wrong. (laughs) He Hmm. says this, As to repenting of my injustices, I've done no injustice, and I repent of nothing. And that night he goes into that bedroom, opens the window. There's your window symbolism Mm -hmm. again. Let's the weather pour in, withering weather to the end. But he lies down with the open window and dies. Just like Catherine said, little Catherine said, alone. 
Well, unless you think the ghost was there. Catherine <laughs> was uh, And, of course, the irony is that Harriton, the one most wronged by Heathcliff from the beginning, stayed by his corpse, and he cried. Uh, and then more gothic weirdness. They bury him next to Catherine the way that he wanted and the book actually ends with Lockwood going up to look at it, the three headstones and Heathcliff's with his only name and death date on it. Well, and then we have the final contrast because Catherine and Harriton will be married on New Year's Day, a new year, mm-hmm. a new beginning. And they even update the inscription over the door of Withering Heights, which had read 1500 Earnshaw. Now it reads 1802 Harriton Earnshaw, which means we've come full circle from Catherine and Henley Earnshaw, the broken, to Catherine and Harriton Earnshaw, the healed. To me, it's inspiring. Catherine masters the experience that destroyed her mother. Emily Bronte wrote a religious essay, one of the few things of hers that wasn't destroyed, and in it she says this, All creation is equally insane. Nature is an inexplicable puzzle. Life exists on a principle of destruction. Every creature must be relentless instrument of death to the other or himself cease to live. She goes on to say, If hypocrisy, cruelty, and ingratitude are the characteristics exclusively of mean people, this class includes everyone. She sees all of us not only with a great capacity to hurt each other, but she likely expects all of us to do it at one point or another. Uh, And if that's true, it also seems that Bronte believes everyone is going to get pummeled. They're going to get betrayed, get abused, or, or something by someone or something at some point. Yes, and then she brings up the ability to forgive that makes a person win in their own head. It gets us out of the past and into the future. Bronte wrote a little poem, and I know it's going to be confusing, but she says this, I know that justice holds in store reprisals for those days of gore, nor for the blood, but for the sin of stifling mercy's voice within, meaning that the sin is stifling mercy. It's a strange poem, but what she's saying is if we face something horrifically vicious, we can't judge. The only sin that will kill you is the sin of not forgiving. Uh, Her biblical teachings would teach her that the mercy shall obtain mercy. And if you remember from Reverend James Branderham's sermon in Lockwood's Dream, he talks about this is the beginning sequence of the book, how many times you should forgive, 70 times 7. That is her total understanding of Christianity. I know Christianity isn't the only faith that speaks of forgiveness, but for Emily, it was her Christian roots of her father's faith that informed this conclusion and her understanding of the hope and the power to bring healing that she tries to express in her novel. Well, Wuthering Heights certainly judges no one. Uh, It dramatizes the psychological trauma of abuse, but instead of judging it, somehow it just comes to this fairy tale ending of being able to transcend it. 
And I like that. (laughs) Wuthering Heights gives us this brutal experience of living through the same abusive treatment, not once, but twice. But we as readers get a redo in life, a second Catherine. And in the second Catherine, we arrive at a place of wholeness and redemption through forgiveness. I would never have imagined she could have ever gotten to that place, but she did And it's nice that she did. Indeed. And on that note, we will conclude our adventures at Wuthering Heights. Thanks for being with us in this series. Check us out on our Facebook page. Check us out on Instagram. Check us out on our How to Love It podcast page and keep up to date with what we're doing. Peace out. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.